This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. Quick reminder, the show that this podcast is associated with is back. We're coming back at you, ruining common misconceptions and telling you the awful truth about everything you took for granted. Every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And you can also find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. Now, on this podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts about the work they do and why it is so fascinating and interesting. Today's guest is such a treat. Her name is Ann Curzan. She appeared on Adam Ruins What We Learned in School. And she is here today to talk to us about language and grammar, about how language is constantly evolving and about how dictionaries are not the final source of authority on the English language. And why we need to go a little bit easier on each other when we say stuff like, that's not a word, or you didn't use that word correctly, or your grammar is wrong. Well, we all just need to chill out and enjoy the incredible variety that the English language has to offer us. Anne is an English professor at the University of Michigan, where she researches the history of English and lexicography. We're so excited to have her join us today from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So let's get to the interview. Well, Anne, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So on the TV show, we talked about how the grammar rules that people uh, you know, tell each other, especially the ones we learn in school, or the sort of, you know, when people start correcting each other, uh, how those are not really as strict as we think. Is that, is that an apt way to put it? Yeah, I think there are a whole range of different kinds of rules, and I think it can help to start to untangle all those rules and where they come from. So, But we certainly can say that many of the things that we have been told are somehow wrong. If you look at them from the point of view of a linguist and you think about how language works, you can't say they're wrong. You could say they're informal. You could say they're nonstandard. But they're not wrong. Okay, can you can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people probably hearing this, you know, a rule pops into their heads uh, that they're like, wait a second, no, when people say this, that's definitely wrong. It means the opposite of what, you know, the person using it that way thinks it means. And so they're really using language incorrectly. Right. So we could, we could take a couple of different examples. Let's start with what we would call double negation. Right, and that's so a classic be, one, yeah. Yeah, so this would be a construction like... We don't have none of those uh, instead of we don't have any of those. Or we could think about Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. So you've got two negative words, a not and a no or a not and a none. And there is this traditional idea or rule out there that at least in modern English, those two negatives cancel each other out, which I have to say for I think all of us, we know that it, that is not true, <laughs> that I can't get no satisfaction does not mean that I am satisfied. <laughs> that is ridiculous, right? We know that. Yes. So those two negatives do not cancel each other out and make a positive. And people will say, but 
In math, if you multiply two <laughs> negatives, you get a positive. Right. Which is true. I have two responses to that. One is language is not math. Yeah. Right? The other is, and I have to say, I started college as a math major. Really? I say, let's do math. Sure, if you multiply two negatives, you get a positive. But if you add two negatives, what do you get? Another you negative. Get a bigger, you get a bigger negative. Right. And then, as a historian of the language, what I know is that Multiple negation or double negation has a long history in English. If you go back to Old English, the language of Beowulf, you find multiple negation. If you go to Chaucer, you find double or multiple negation. It's even still in the language by the time of Shakespeare. The standard variety starts to move towards single negation, but many, many varieties of English still use double or multiple negation. So it has a long history in the language. And this is, I think, a great example that there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, the standard language has moved towards single negation. Um, but it's also nonsense to say that two negatives in we don't have none cancel <laughs> each other out. Now, I know that some listeners will be saying, OK, but wait, wait, wait. What about I'm not unhappy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and oh, there... You know, there they cancel each other out a little bit, but I would say, if I say, I'm not unhappy, that does not mean I'm happy. Right. It means you're saying, I, I am not, unhappiness is a state that I don't possess. I, if you were to say I'm unhappy, you'd be wrong, but you're not necessarily making a <laughs> statement about your happiness. That's exactly right. So even <laughs> there, those two negatives don't totally cancel each other out. So if the... If that, you know, idea about, you know, uh, single ne or about double negation doesn't, you know, if it doesn't actually sort of make logical sense and it doesn't come from the history of the language, why do so many people have such a strong feeling about it? I mean, I almost feel that way in myself. Like, yes, yes, double negation. That means, you know, they cancel each other out. Where does that idea come from? I think for many of us, it comes from years of schooling, mm. first of all. And then those ideas are just... In circulation. So I know when I talk with students about it, sometimes they've heard it from their parents. Mm. They've heard it from other adults, this sense that there are certain constructions that are wrong and certain constructions that are right. So it's, it's in the air to some extent. It's certainly in schooling where this the variety that I would call standard um, and there are standard varieties of the language suddenly becomes the only right way mm. and as opposed to the standard way. And what I would love to see is if we could think about standard varieties the way we think about, for example, shared measurements, right? It really helps if we all agree on what an inch is and a foot or a meter and a centimeter. That's a shared system of measurements. Mm -hmm. And the standard can serve as a shared form of communication that we can all use across our different dialects of English. And so if you learn the standard, then you can use that with other speakers. But what I like to talk with students about is what is called code switching, which is moving among languages or moving among dialects so that you control the standard variety and you may control one or two or three non-standard varieties, right. as well as maybe some other languages. And you're switching among those depending on where you are. What community are you in? What variety is going to work best 
in that community because what we all know is that the standard variety is not always the best choice depending on where you are. Uh, so so let, let me just, before we get into that, the, so the standard variety is what you'd call sort of what you're taught in school or or uh, what is in, you know, strunk and white or whatever. That's that's the sort of version that was eventually codified sort of in the last couple hundred years as and, and maybe and the rules are. So when you hear language rules, it pertains to this particular variety is is what you're saying. I am. I have to say that as soon as you try to pin down exactly what a standard variety of English is, it tends to slip out of your fingers. Okay. That it's it proves to be it's easier to define what isn't standard than what ah. is. It's a really interesting uh, body of scholarship as people try to actually define the standard. And there are people who will say we should talk about multiple standards. It is easier to identify it in writing than it is in speech. Mm. And what things like Strunk and White do is they codify, I mean, in some ways they codify the standard, but they also codify a very formal written standard. Right. So it's it's there we're also getting into this sort of formal, sometimes academic, but certainly formal language. So when you say that those standard varieties aren't always the best choice, there are some situations that where they aren't the best choice, what sort of situations do you mean? Well, for example, if you think about local advertising, in a lot of regions of the country, you will hear the spokespeople in advertisements speaking in local dialects because that can sound more trustworthy, more friendly, more genuine. So you will hear, I mean, the the choice to use a variety that sounds more local because they think that will be more appealing to the audience. And I think they're right. Right. I've heard that a lot in, in, yeah, just radio ads around L.A. They're very, very vernacular. Right. And so there is this, I think people at some level think, well, shouldn't it be that if we're all watching the same television shows and we're listening to the same music, wouldn't we all start to talk the same? And from what we can tell, the answer is no, Hmm. that while we hear these things on the radio and television, we are quite attached to our local communities, too. And and there are times when we want to sound like our communities, that we don't want to sound like everybody else. Mm-hmm. We want to sound like where we're from. That's really that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I grew up on Long Island, um, which is you know has a has a pretty thick accent associated with it, and and I, w- I don't know if I'd call it a dialect, but it's certainly linguistically unique. You know, but my parents you know moved there from you know from else from other states from Florida and Michigan, right? So they you know they weren't uh, you know I don't have a family history there, and we lived pretty far out east, like in Suffolk County, like not you know Nassau Queens, the you know the sort of places where you really associate with that way of speaking, and and. And so I often thought it was interesting that, like, I didn't grow up with an accent, you know, at least not that I that I super strongly perceive. Right. Um, Like even other people in my high school had stronger New York accents than I did. And I often think, oh, yeah, I must have must be because I watch so much TV. I must have picked up broadcast English and that's the way I speak. But, yeah, when you saying that makes me think about how often I will switch into sort of a Long Island access, accent either for the purposes of comedy or just because I want to speak a little bit differently in a, in a particular context. Like I do have that as – I do have that as something that I can switch into. Right. And, and I want to catch one thing you said there. It was interesting. You said, so I didn't have an accent. Mm-hmm. 
And as a linguist, I would say we all have accents. Ah. Right? So often when people say I don't have an accent or she doesn't have an accent, they mean she doesn't have an accent that I can identify as being from a particular region. But of course, all of us Americans <laughs> sound American yes. to Australians. And we're all from somewhere. Brits. Yeah. We're all from somewhere. So so we all have an accent. It's just what whether it is one that people recognize as being from a particular place. That's so and funny. that's what's it's it's interesting to me. We'll notice particular things. So for example, if I were to talk about a writing implement and say, Oh, can I borrow your pin? Mm-hmm. instead of pen, then I would guess that you would have some guesses about where I'm from yeah. if I'm a pin speaker. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, say, I actually don't have guesses. Where is that from? Well, so that's Southern. Okay. Um, oh, and yeah, linguists, Right? So can I – a pin, right with a pin. Um, and linguists call that the pin-pen merger. Mm-hmm. We really do call it that. Hmm. Um, but there's another merger going on that most people are not noticing – and so we'll do a little test here. I'm going to spell two words, and you get to say them out loud, and we'll see how you say them. Oh, so this one is, great. is one is C O T, and the other is C A U G H T. Uh, okay, so I'll I'll use in a sentence. I'll say uh, while I was camping, I slept on a cot, mm-hmm. and then I'll say uh, I went fishing and I caught a fish. Right. So you you say the two words differently. Yes. Because you grew up on Long Island. Oh, that is a part of Long... That is a lot. I caught it. I caught yeah, a well, fish. It's not, <laughs> You're right. It's not, just, it's not just a Long Island thing. I grew up in Maryland, and I also say caught. I slept on a cot, and I caught the ball. Mm-hmm. But much of the western part of the United States has undergone what we call the caught-caught merger. Huh. And they have merged those two vowels. I used to teach at the University of Washington in Seattle, and when I would teach students about the sound system, and I would say, okay, say these two words, and for many, many, if not all of the students in my class, if they were from the state of Washington, they both, they had, I slept on a cot, and I caught the ball. Huh. And then they would say, wait, what do you say? And I would say, well, I say cot and caught. And they would look at me and they would say, caught? Caught? You really say caught? And I would say to them, you didn't notice this until I pointed it out. Yeah, it's just subtle enough. <laughs> um, so there are, there are variants that we notice and variants that we don't. And, and let me just say, people love, once you tell people about these variants, people love them. Like there's all those quizzes that are online now that's like, we can figure out where you're from based on what words you use or et cetera. Um, and it's, it's crazy how specific they are. Like I just saw one that was, it blew my mind because it was, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff I'd seen. It's like, do you call, you know, uh, uh, you know, the one where it's Coke or pop or soda, you know, um, that's, that's like a classic one, different parts of the country. Um, one was sneakers or tennis shoes. I'm like, who's saying tennis shoes? But I guess I forget where, I forget where it is. Uh, I say tennis shoes. You say tennis shoes as a generic (laughs) for that type of shoe. And Shara, our producer does too. Wow. <laughs> and what's great, so so that people do love those dialect quizzes, and it was there was one that was published in the New York Times a few years ago, which was the most viewed article in the New York Times for that year. Yes. And I've had a few people say to me, they have this sort of, oh my gosh, it's magic. <laughs> and and I say, actually, it's not magic. 
it's dialectology. (laughs) This is actually what we study. It's just amazing, though, how specific it can be. Like the one I the one that blew my mind was um, it was what do you call the kind of sale where people put stuff out, you know, out on their lawns or in their garages and you go and you go buy stuff from your neighbors. And it was yard sale, garage sale or tag sale. And my mom always said, oh, let's go to a tag sale. I clicked on that to see where it was from. And it was from like a small part of Connecticut, like. A third of Connecticut, and gr- I grew up on Long Island, right across the Long Island Sound, so I guess it had made its way to that. But I was like, this is the most specific re- – I had no idea that this was a regionalism at all, and it's like localized to like uh, a 30-mile, 50-mile radius around where I grew up. It was uh, it, it was uh, really stunning. Right, and and so a few of them are that localized. If you take something like pop, soda, Coke – that one, not as specific. I mean, you can get general areas of the country. For example, pop tends to be the Midwest. Coke as a generic tends to be the South. And then, of course, I grew up with soft drink, which my students think is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, soft drink sounds very that, – that sounds like like you're from the 80s to me if you say soft drink. That's like I, I expect to be holding a tab. It's my generic. What can I tell you? I can't say pop with a straight face. Pop is very weird to me. That's like what my cousins said growing up. Um, so when everyone says that, I'm like, oh, you must be related to my cousins. Well, so these are all geographical, but but you you also you know we've talked about uh, you know specific dialects that are like uh, you know specific to different age groups or other groups. Is that correct? Yeah. So language will vary by social groups. It varies by geography and it varies by social group. And that's what we're studying in linguistics. Um, If you're studying dialectology or sociolinguistics, social variation, is to figure out these patterns of variation. And I want to go back to this idea of of how interested people are in this. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. And people can find an enormous amount of joy in thinking about language, playing with language, learning about where these things come from. And then you think about people's reaction to quote-unquote grammar and people suddenly get this look of fear and they say, oh, I'm not good at that. Uh. I'm scared of that. And I think really it's it's all language. And mm. I'd love to see us be teaching language in this much more exploratory way where we're right. looking at, for example, if we go back to double negation Where does that come from? Is it really true that those cancel each other out? Students are very interested in this. I just was giving a lecture the other day and I asked the students, what's wrong with ain't? And I said, I want you to come up with three things that you've heard are wrong with the word ain't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they came up with one was you can't tell what it stands for. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. What does it expand to? Ain't. Ain not or something. It's like we have that idea of, of contractions are supposed to expand out. Right. So if you have shouldn't, you can tell it should not. Or isn't, you can tell it is not. Ain't, what does it stand for? And I said, okay, fair enough. But what about won't? And they're like, oh, yeah, good point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, wool, wool not. <laughs> right. So won't is also not transparent. But won't has become acceptable, whereas ain't is not. Right. Um, so then they said, well, you know, sometimes I've heard people who say it's not a word. 
And I said, okay, now that's interesting, right? This gets into this what counts as a word. And I said, well, do you know what it means? And they said, yes. And I'm like, well, then is it a word? And they said, yes. <laughs> and, and in fact, there is this, you know, ain't isn't in the dictionary. And of course, ain't is in I think it's it's certainly in almost every dictionary you look in. Yeah. Uh, because it's a word, you will sometimes see a label that says something like non-standard, but it's a word and you'll find it in standard dictionaries. So that right. doesn't that doesn't hold water. People will say, "Oh, I don't like the way it sounds." Hmm. And I say, "Well, how do you feel about paint and faint?" <laughs> and they say, "Oh, those are fine." Yeah. <laughs> and I say, "But they rhyme." So what what's happened here is that you have, for social reasons, a contraction that has gotten stigmatized as being wrong. If you go back 200 years, you can find that whole lists of contractions were called wrong. Mm. And in that was doesn't and shouldn't and won't. And they were all described as being terrible forms. And over time, the rest of them have gotten redeemed and ain't still is somehow seen as wrong. Mm. But of course, people will still use it sometimes when they want to be emphatic. So it's a complicated word. But again, there's nothing, if you look at it linguistically in terms of just the form itself, there's nothing wrong with it, except that people have said there's something wrong with it. That's so funny. And and the, it really strikes me when you say uh, that people say it's not a word, because that is something that people say about words all the time. People often say that words aren't words. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's not a word. You can't say that. But we so rarely examine what we mean when we make that statement. Like when someone says ain't isn't a word or I'm trying to think of another example of, of something. Chillax. Oh, great. Chillax isn't a word. Perfect. Chillax isn't a word. Great. Um, that means something different than when you say, you know, global flarble isn't a word. Right. Um, uh, I, I assume that's not a piece of slang. I assume that's a nonsense combination of sounds I made up. And so what do you think people are actually saying when they say, you know, chillax or ain't isn't a word? Yeah, what there are probably a couple different things. I think with a word like chillax, it's slang. Mm -hmm. So it's relatively new. And I think the concern is that somehow it hasn't been legitimized yet. Mm. The authorities on high have not yet sort of waived their word wand and said, I now dub you a word. And what's fascinating is if you step back from that, and I do think that we sort of think that there are these authorities out there that will do that. And you say, who are those authorities? That suddenly you get into this really interesting discussion of, okay, who are we waiting for <laughs> right. to say this? And they will say, and often we get to, okay, well, the people who write dictionaries and for most people, they have no idea who write dictionaries, but they, they know that there are people who are doing that and watching the language. And they say, okay, well, when it gets into a dictionary, then it's a real word. Right. And as someone who has spent many years studying dictionaries and how they're made, I'm here to say that if you talk to the editors of dictionaries, they will say, we're watching you all to try to see what you're doing. And then we're trying to record that in dictionaries. Huh. So with a word like chillax, what dictionary editors are doing is trying to see if that word is going to make it. Because a lot of slang is ephemeral. Right. It's it's there for 5 minutes yes. and it's gone. 
And you and it's totally understandable that dictionary makers, dictionary editors do not want to put in these words that are just fads because they're going to look silly five years later yeah. for having put those words in. So they're watching to see if this word is worth sort of embalming, <laughs> enshrining in a dictionary. But that doesn't mean that it's not a word before they make that call. Hmm. A word is a word if we all know what it means. If the community of people using it knows what it means, mm -hmm. that's a word. And so I do think that gobblefarble, <laughs> at least for you and me, is not a word because you and I don't know what that means. Right. But I know what chillax means. Yeah. And so do I. And I, so does, I assume, a large portion of the people uh, listening to this. Um, and in fact, that one, I think, has started to make it into many dictionaries. Yeah, I would imagine I would imagine it would at, at this point, or at least the more uh, the more adventurous dictionaries, certainly. Yeah, I, I think that's so interesting because we think of the dictionary as being the almost iconic version of an authoritative reference work. You know, uh, like that's the way you're taught to use it in school is go look it up in the dictionary. If it's not in the dictionary, it almost doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, um, that the dictionary is this somehow exhaustive catalog that is prescriptive and, you know, definitional that, that, that it that by its definitions, it sort of creates the concepts. And that's where you go. You're almost like you're looking at, you know, the true version of Plato's, you know, shadows in the cave when you go look at the dictionary. Um, and so it's so it's such a, a 180 degree shift to hear that. Yeah, they're, the dictionary people are treating it more like, uh, um, I don't know, a field guide or something where it's like they notice a new word in the wild and then they say, OK, here's what we, you know, here's how we think the people are using it. Yeah, they're walking a fine line. And first, I want to say I'm really interested in the phrase the dictionary. Hmm. So when people say, let's go look it up in the dictionary or the dictionary says. Right. Because. There are lots and lots of dictionaries, and they all actually have different philosophies to them. Uh. If you look at the history, Merriam-Webster has a different philosophy from American Heritage, from Oxford. So there are – and then these – the editors are trying to – they would say, at least now, most of them would say that they're trying to describe the language. As you say, they're watching it. They're trying to capture how it's used. They do recognize that it's tricky if they're using what we call usage labels, those little labels like slang or informal. If you put informal or slang next to a word and you're just trying to be descriptive, say people are using it as slang, so we're going to put slang next to it, yeah. then have you kept the word as slang because people look it up and they say, oh, I can't use it in formal writing because it's slang mm. – but the dictionary editors were just trying to describe the way we use it. So you get this sort of cyclical thing right. because we tend to go to dictionaries looking for authority. And they're saying, we're trying to capture what you all are doing. And dictionary users are saying, but we want you to tell us what we should do. <laughs> so one of my, my favorite examples is what does the word peruse mean? How do you use the word peruse, P-E-R-U-S-E? -E? Uh, I would use it to mean like I'm sort of idly looking at something like I'm in the doctor's office and there's a magazine there about, you know, there's a golf magazine. I don't really care about golf, but I'm bored. So I just peruse it. I flip through it and I say, oh, you know, oh, here's the kind of articles they have in there, but I don't really read it very thoroughly. 
perfect. Now, historically, what peruse has meant is to read carefully or to pour over. Really? Yes. <laughs> Wait, that's the that's that's the literal opposite. Yes. So that word has flipped on its head and in some dictionaries, I mean, most dictionaries now will have both meanings. Hmm. American Heritage for a long time has labeled the skim or scan meaning as a quote unquote usage problem. Huh. And with usage problems, what American Heritage does, and this is, I think, worth everybody knowing about, there'll be a usage note. And the usage note will explain the history of what's happening here. For example, people are starting to use peruse to mean skim or scan. Yeah. And I don't they're not even starting. I mean, when I poll undergrads, they're all using it to mean skim or scan. Yeah. I've and never many even them... heard I've never even heard it used the other way or if I did, I was confused because it probably seemed to but I can't remember ever seeing it the other way. Right. And many of my students can also um, peruse can involve walking. So you can be perusing the grocery store shelves as you walk by them. Huh. But if you look at those usage notes, what's really interesting is that they will say things like 67% of the usage panel rejects this use of peruse. Huh. Now, the question that everybody should be asking is, who is the usage panel? Yes, that's the question I want. <laughs> I, I'm asking that question now. Who is this usage panel? Exactly. And this was American Heritage. When it was created in the 1960s, they decided that they were going to try to provide some advice and guidance to people about, I'm going to put it here in scare quotes, correct usage or formal usage. Um, so here we get into this sort of to what extent are dictionaries prescribing or describing. And American Heritage in its earliest days said we're going to have this usage panel, which is going to be these highly educated experts <laughs> right. who are going to pronounce on judgment questions. And so they started doing that in the late 1960s. It, the panel is now about 200 people. In its earliest days, it was very conservative. They have since then sort of opened it up. It's become more descriptive. And in 2005, I was invited to join the usage panel, oh. which – and I thought long and hard about it because I thought – do I want to be on this panel that has this history of being very conservative and very prescriptive about shoulds and shouldn'ts? Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, because the only way you change that is to get some linguists on there right. who are thinking about these questions differently. So if you look online at American Heritage, you can actually – there's a link where you can click on the usage panel and you can see all the names of the people on the usage panel. So there are wonderful authors on there. There are journalists, um, NPR, National Public Radio figures like Garrison Keillor and David Sedaris. Uh, Antonin Scalia was on the usage panel okay. um, until he passed away. A very, very notable for his writing, I know. Yeah, and, and cared a lot about language. He mm. was pretty conservative about language. So every year in the fall, I get a survey. I get a ballot that has all of these sentences, and I'm supposed to vote about whether this sentence is acceptable or not acceptable. And then that goes into these notes where it says how much of the panel is accepting or rejecting a particular sentence. That's so interesting, though, because as you were just saying, our, our use of language depends so much on 
on who you are, where you grew up, what your socioeconomic, you know, position is or, or who you know. I mean, so are you just doing that based on like, here's how I use the word or, or, uh, and so are we just getting like a sample of only, you know, if you Garrison Keeler and David Sedaris and Scalia, you're just like, yeah, that's how I use peruse. And then that beca- goes, what's in the dictionary? Is it leaving a lot of people's usages out or? That is the, it's, that's exactly the right question. And as I say to students, when we talk about this, I say, what the usage panel can do for you is give you a gauge of how cranky the <laughs> gatekeepers are. <laughs> right? Because if you look at this, the, the, what the usage panel is, is a pretty good survey of powerful, highly educated people, the people who are probably gatekeepers to particular kinds of jobs. And so what this tells you is, are people still cranky about this, Ah. which is really helpful information because it lets you make decisions when you're writing a cover letter. Do I want to use this or not? Not because it's right or wrong, but because people might be cranky about it. (laughs) And And I have to say, to me, that makes much more sense. Yeah. Is to say, okay, I can accept that. I can accept that this is new. And so some folks who didn't grow up with it or have been educated in particular ways don't like it. And because I'm writing this cover letter, I don't really want to risk making those people cranky because then they won't like my cover letter. So I'm going to just not use this. But in other situations, I am going to use it because it's going to work well in those situations. You know, I've noticed that. So on the show, you know, one of the ones we had, uh, uh, one of the ones we talk about on the show is literally used as a hyperbolic intensifier, literally to mean figuratively, right? Which is one of the ones that gets people the angriest about. And this actually was sort of the germ of the idea that led to the whole segment. When I learned this, that that literally being used hyperbolically to mean, oh, you know, I I, uh, had, you know, I was I was literally dying. I was literally on the floor laughing, that kind of usage that makes people so mad. They say, no, you mean figuratively. You literally mean the opposite of what you said. That it's been used that way for hundreds of years. Um, and it has a incredibly long history that way. And that and that rule is sort of based on almost nothing and is very is very recent. Just knowing that has helped me use the word differently because now I feel more free to use it in a casual context. Um, if I'm, you know, doing stand up comedy or if I'm, you know, say I'm writing a snarky blog post or something like that. But if I but if I'm in a formal context, I know that even though I know the rule doesn't really hold water, I know people are angry about it. So I'm going to be careful uh, if, you know, I'm writing in a context where I think a bunch of uh, stuffy jerks might might jump all over me about it. I think that's you've summarized that so nicely in terms of what I hope people can the perspective people can have about usage, which is this sense of I get to make choices and I get to make choices based on what I want to achieve. And maybe in this context, I do want to make somebody cranky, (laughs) in which case I'm going for it because I think this rule is silly. And so I'm going to push on this. And I did that with singular they. I I used that even when I knew people were going to disagree when I used it in writing. Mm. But it I th- I think it is empowering if people can say I I know that where literally comes from. I know how it's come to mean figuratively. I know that people get cranky about it. Here's how I feel about that. As I sometimes say, the the 
most effective speakers and writers are the savvy ones, are the ones who have that information and feel like they can make choices. Well, I'm here talking to Professor Ann Curzan. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Hey, Max Fun fans. It's me, Jesse, the owner of Maximum Fun. I've got a question for you. Will you help us make our shows better? We wanted to find a way to find out what the Max Fun community thinks about our shows. So we started something called the Max Fun Listener Panel. Basically, you subscribe to a podcast feed, and twice a month or so, roughly speaking, we'll send you an episode of a show and instructions on how to fill out a quick survey about what you think about that show. Ten questions, nothing too crazy. You'll be hearing existing shows that we're thinking about making changes to, secret pilots of shows that we're developing that you'll only hear this way, Uh, shows we're considering adding to the network, and what you think about them really matters to us. So to join the panel, it's easy. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash listener panel. That's MaximumFun.org slash listener panel. Thanks for helping make MaxFun better. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to University of Michigan English professor Ann Curzan about language. Um, well, let, let me ask you this. We've been talking a lot about how everyone speaks differently and about how, you know, what we think of the rules of English language are really more rules about uh, the standard variety um, and that it's, you know, you can't really say that, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we want to say are wrong are really just another way of speaking that as long as you understand it, then it's an OK way to speak, assuming that you have the context right and, and uh, you're not offending anybody, uh, et cetera. That's all good. But then when I tell people about this topic, they say, OK, but aren't there some things that are just wrong? Like, can what about the spelling of your, you know, your and your right like that, that kind of thing? Can I aren't there some lines where, you know, we, we can say this is wrong or not? Yeah. So spelling is the most standardized part of the language. And I wouldn't count spelling as grammar. Hmm. Spelling is spelling. Spelling is usage. So sure, if given how standardized our spelling is, you can spell a word wrong. Absolutely. Right? You can also make typos. <laughs> These are all things that can happen. So I would say spelling is probably the easiest place to say that we have a very strong sense of what standard spellings are and that people would say if you don't spell it that way, then you're wrong. Um, Now, spelling has not always been so standardized, I would like to note, that if you go back into Middle English, into Chaucer's time, you will find words spelled different ways on the same page um, because people didn't have such a strong sense that you had to spell a word. There was only one way to spell a word, which I know right now is hard. It's hard for us to get our head around to say, didn't they notice that that word was spelled in different ways on the same page. And the analogy that I use, and we'll see if if you find this helpful, is my handwriting. So my handwriting is a funny mix of print and script. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you have a similar thing or if you know people who have a similar... I thing. haven't written anything by hand since 2007, <laughs> so... I, I, Fair enough. <laughs> I don't know so how to do I it still- anymore. I still write on the board and things. Yeah. So, so what this means is that, for example, I have two different Fs 
Hmm. I have a print F and I have a script script F. Right. And when I'm writing, I use the two interchangeably. So you'll see both Fs in the same sentence. Hmm. Now, most people who read my handwriting have never really noticed this or processed that. They just see those two different Fs and they process them both as F and don't their brain doesn't stop to think about it. Right. And I say, now let's imagine that we then moved into a system where there was only one way to write an F. And if you didn't write it that way, then you were wrong. Then people would start to then people would go back and say, how could they not notice that Anne had two different Fs? How was this not distracting to them? Right. But of course, our brain has decided that that variation doesn't matter, that we know how to deal with that variation. And so in earlier periods of English, people were willing to tolerate much more variation in spelling, that they knew that M-I-H-T and M-I-G-H-T were both might. And that was fine. Huh. It often seems like – and – Tell me if you agree with this, because you're the linguist, and I'm I'm just making this up right now. Um, oh, good. But it seems like part of the issue is that you know we have these desires to you know we want language to be rational. You know we want you know we say well you're you know y o u apostrophe r e that one's a contraction, and so that's why you spell it that way, and the other one's like this. You know literally is only used this way. Um, you know uh, uh, it's a double negation. It must work like math. Like we have this desire to uh, have it have our language conform to rules, but it seems like the truth is that even the very idea that language should or could be understood rationally is m- way more recent than we think. Like it's, it, you know, I, I know the first dictionary was, uh, you know, Samuel Johnson in like the 18th century. And he was just like, you know, that was what, a couple hundred years ago. And that was the first time anyone in English had even tried to catalog the words that people were using. And, you know, in any kind of uh you know, a uh, comprehensive list. And then, you know, all of the rules we put on that, like these are all such recent developments for a language that we've been speaking thousands of years. It sort of looks like we're trying to, uh, you know, we're, we're the people trying to put the butterflies in the boxes, you know, and put pins through them and, and say, oh, they must be, have it must work this way for a reason. This must be like math. But really we're, we're trying to impose order on a, on a, on a messy sort of natural system that, that evolved all by itself in a way. Wow, there was a lot in there. Adam. <laughs> I'm sure I said three or four things that made no sense. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that that's me just sort of creating my gestalt of of you know how speaking to you makes me think about this differently. Well, so so a couple of thoughts. The first is I just want to note that actually the first dictionary, the first English English dictionary, goes a little further back. I knew I was uh, going to be wrong about that, and that was going to ruin everything. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> So the first English English dictionary is 1604, and it's Robert Caudry's A Table Alphabetical, which is tiny. It's so interesting because it's tiny. It only has about 3,000 headwords because it is a dictionary of hard usual words. The idea being that you don't need a dictionary for the easy words because mm. everybody already knows those. Yeah. So you are right that by the time we get to Samuel Johnson in 1755, we get this idea that dictionaries should be more comprehensive. They should be trying to catalog the language in this fuller, more comprehensive way, as opposed to just help people with the hard words that they might not know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
You are right that as we, we have seen over the last few hundred years, standardization, increasing standardization of the language, this attempt to to pin down a standard variety. In the 18th and 19th century, we see this rise in usage guides as, and really this is partly about social mobility, that usage guides come about as a way to quote unquote help people rise in the ranks by speaking and writing in particular ways. Are you saying that the usage guides were sort of codifying, well, this is how the the well-off or the better educated speak, and it was a way for people who didn't have those benefits to sort of speak like their quote-unquote betters? That is a big part of what's happening, wow. yeah. So when people the, – the, the varieties that have become the standard varieties have become the standard varieties for social – political, and economic reasons. Ah. Not because there's anything inherent in the structure of those varieties, but because of the speakers of those varieties and who had power to say, you know, this is the way that other people should speak. Mm-hmm. So, the, but the other thing I want to put on the table, which is interesting to me, is there's a wonderful argument out there by a linguist named Deborah Cameron, who says, we do need to remember that once you have a community of speakers you're going to have some speakers telling other speakers how they should and shouldn't use the language. Hmm. That that actually seems to be a natural part of speech communities is that we're going to monitor other people's language. And you think about that. I mean, people do it. Kids do it on the playground by making a joke about somebody's language or, you know, we, we, this is just part of daily interaction is that you're going to get, some people judging other people's speech. What we've seen with English in the last few hundred years is this increasing standardization and codification of a written variety for particular purposes. But I think I find it helpful to remember that it's not that this is an, uh, an unnatural impulse, <laughs> that there does seem to be something we're always going to notice the way people talk. I love that because uh, honestly, that expands my perspective more because, you know, everything that I've been looking at this with is like, okay, this idea of telling other people how they speak is wrong and unnatural. That's not quite right because, you know, how people, you know, people use the language in a way that makes sense to them. And and a lot of times we're talking about these natural variations in dialects. And so uh, that's incorrect to tell other people they're incorrect. But you're saying that this is also a natural part of the way humans as a society use language is uh, is, is there's a little bit of this this monitoring and this nudging in order to sort of what keep everybody uh, you know communicating with each other or well hard to know I mean it can do different things but I also find it helpful because I think it, it helps you think the goal is not not to notice language difference of course you're going to notice language difference and. Noticing that people in this region of the country or this social group speak in particular ways, that can be a really interesting thing to notice Mm. because understanding the way that other varieties of the language work is a really important thing to do. So noticing difference, I think, is great. What we can control is then the judgments that we make about that difference. Mm. So you can notice difference. And what I hope people do is go, that's so interesting. I want to understand why that person uses language differently from the way I use language. Instead of that person must be wrong 
because that person doesn't speak the way I do. <laughs> right? So, and that piece we can control. We can say, you know, what what judgments do I find myself making based on difference? And 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 I've sometimes had people ask, well, but aren't you always going to think that if someone speaks differently from you that they speak wrong? And I say, no. I mean, think about, for example, many Americans' attitude about Australian English. Right. We love it. People People have decided that that's cool, that that's <laughs> adventurous, that the connotations of Australian English are are pretty positive. So it's not that people always judge language difference in a negative way. Right. And what happens when we do judge each other's language in a negative way? Why is that something that we should be mindful of? Thanks for asking that. <laughs> I'm so no, I'm so glad because I think it's it's such a good thing for us to think about. I, I, my response would be the first thing to remember is that language is a really important part of who we are. That your language reflects where you grew up, your family. Um, so it's a part of your identity. When someone criticizes your language, they are therefore criticizing a part of you and a part of your community. When people say, oh, it's just language, my response is, it's never just language. Yeah. It never is. And so I think one of the things that can happen is that when people tell other people that they talk wrong or they speak bad English, it's really silencing. Hmm. And I think about that if we go back to education, which is where we started, to think about what happens for a little kid in school if the teacher is saying, stop using that bad English. Yeah. And you're saying, okay, the way you use the language is bad, which means the way your family uses the language is bad. And it is totally understandable if that kid's response is, I don't want to talk at school. Because when I talk, I get corrected. Yeah. I get So it's a really good way to silence someone. <laughs> and, that, and that can lead to when you were saying before, when people feel scared of grammar or they say, oh, I'm not good at grammar, that's, it's because of that. Or I imagine it's because of that sort of uh, chastisement. They have those memories of, of being uh, diminished for, for that. That's right. And they have memories of red pens and turning things in and being told that they – and feeling somehow like I'm stupid that I don't understand this right. as opposed to a model in which we're not telling kids that they talk wrong. And what I'd love to see, and there are schools that are that are trying out curricula that do this, is that especially in those early grades, you know, kids are learning a little bit of chemistry and a little bit of geology and a little bit, you know, they're learning little bits of lots of subjects. And when they're learning about language, why aren't we teaching them about how dialects work hmm. and where does slang come from and how does a word get into a dictionary? Even little kids are really interested in that. And it helps to open this up and make it fun because all of us actually are interested in it, are interested in language. And I, and I worry that we kind of drum that out of kids in school. as a po And then you can teach the standard variety. You can then say, okay, here are different variations. This is the standard variation. This is others. And, and I have to say kids can absolutely learn that. They can learn how to code switch. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, of, of course they can because they they do it to a certain extent, you know. And nobody and nobody has affirmed. Yeah, absolutely. And nobody has said, "Look at what you're doing. That is so cool." Huh? 
me yeah no one says uh your ability to speak two ways is is uh, kind of impressive I, and you you talked about uh we talked about once how uh sort of adults inability to code switches can be a liability in certain situations yeah so i my take is the bigger your linguistic repertoire the better mm. the person with the biggest linguistic repertoire wins because you can be effective in more situations because you control more varieties. Yeah. And that is not the message that I think a lot of young people are getting. That's really that's really fascinating. It's almost in the same way that, you know, a, a, a different scale version of when people say, oh, I want my kid to know Mandarin so that in the future, you know, they can uh, go, uh, you know, do business in China or whatever it is. Um, you would want your kid to be able to sort of feel at ease talking to as many different Americans as possible. Yeah. So I think that's right. I mean, can, how many languages do you control? Do you control more than one variety of English? Formal varieties, informal varieties, texting language, right? I mean, I'm a terrible texter. That makes me not especially effective in that particular kind of written English. I would do better if I were a better texter. <laughs> at least at least communicating if you had to text 13-year-olds, you, you certainly would. <laughs> That's right, and sometimes I do. <laughs> and it's that exp- and, and I also have the experience of you know my my folks are almost unable to text uh, uh, properly, and it impedes my communication with them. Like I'm I, I'm not in as good touch with my parents because of their lack of facility with uh, uh, texting, both technologically but also linguistically. You know, than I am with you know uh, uh, a much wider group of my friends uh, because we we text so quickly and so fluently. Uh, so older people, I think when they look at texting, will say, oh, it's just chaos. These young people don't care about the language. They don't care about punctuation. And and I do this activity with undergraduates at the University of Michigan where they generate an etiquette guide for texting with all the rules for how to, for example, use emoticons, uh, those little smiley faces yeah. and emoji, and how to use punctuation. And they... They are surprised by how much agreement they have with each other about, oh, yeah, the period is angry and right. this, is how, this is how many ha's you need to say it's funny and <laughs> this is the difference between capital LOL and lowercase LOL. And so they make this guide and then I show it to older people and they say, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that there were these rules. Yeah. And I'm like, that's exactly right. You are describing this chaos and you're describing it as chaos because you don't know the rules. Huh. <laughs> but in fact, there are rules. And and then, of course, when I speak with older speakers, then they worry about, oh, my gosh, I'm, I must be miscommunicating <laughs> with my grandchildren. And and I, my, what I love is the undergraduates, they'll say, oh, yeah, well, we make an exception for old people. Ah, that's really <laughs> funny. The rules also have a lot of nuance, too, though. I read something that really stuck with me. I don't know if you know the comic strip XKCD. Um, I love XKCD. I, I imagine you would. It's uh, it's fantastic. If uh, Probably a lot of the listeners know it as well. But go check it out if you don't. It's a awesome uh, uh, comic about science and, and physics and also language uh, written by this incredibly curious guy named Randall Monroe. Anyway, he had, a, he had the comment that uh, in the strip that people who think that emoji sort of reduce the variability of language um, or reduce the shades of meaning in language or the nuance uh, have never encountered the upside down smiley face emoji. 
because which is true. The upside down smiley face emoji is the most sort of inscrutable. Like I know what it means, but I would have a really hard time describing it or replicating the feeling that it means using, you know, alphanumeric characters. That's right. And and young people do care about the nuances of language. They will describe to me spending a lot of time thinking about a text, especially if it's they're texting someone they're romantically interested in. Sure. Should there be two exclamation marks or three exclamation marks <laughs> or trying to decipher a text that has come in that they are reading these nuances. And I think that what's important to understand here is what is happening with texting language, which is that when people are texting, you've got written language moving very, very fast. So it's moving not at the speed of conversation, but in a more conversational way. But what you don't have is facial expression, tone of voice. You can't hear someone if they're laughing. So what we've done, what young people particularly have done, is take punctuation, take those smiley faces, take the emoji, and recreate some of that context in order to help people know, I'm joking right now. So I put a smiley face or I put JK to say, just kidding. Yeah. That that this is very strategic to try to minimize misunderstanding when writing is moving really fast without enough context. Yep. Yeah, like even just what you were saying about what, how many ha's mean you actually found something was funny. I find that I reflexively, me and my friends reflexively use ha just to let people know the conversation is light. Like you just sort of start mm-hmm. everything with ha ha ha, yes, see you there or whatever, just so <laughs> that people – it's like a, you know the opposite of the period. It's to, it's to uh, give – it almost to give a sense of body language in a way. Uh-huh. So uh, before before we go, this has all been really fascinating. I also want to ask you about this because I know you're in uh, you're a part of the American Dialect Society, which is a group that votes on the word of the year, which I know is every year when the word of the year comes out is like is like big news. Um, Can you (laughs) describe a little bit what that process is like? I can. I'd love to. And I want to note that there are now a few different organizations that are voting on the word of the year. The American Dialect Society, which I belong to, has been doing it the longest. So as I like to say, we're the real word of the year vote. Uh, And we do it the first week of January. You will see in around November, uh, Oxford Dictionaries will come out with a word of the year and Merriam-Webster will come out with a word of the year. We wait until the year is over because you never know what might happen in December. So, you know, we wait. Yeah. And and the way we vote. So and and Oxford and Merriam-Webster have their own ways of deciding what the word of the year is. We do it at our annual meeting, which takes place in different cities every January. On Thursday night, there is a meeting where people can nominate words in particular categories. So there's word of the year. There's also things like most creative word of the year, technology word of the year, things like that. So. Um, and, and at this meeting are lexicographers, are dictionary makers, people who are studying new words. And so they will come with suggestions of some of the words that they've been tracking over the course of the year. But you're welcome to nominate from the floor. And then on Friday night at 530, after the academic panels for the day and right before happy hour, <laughs> we vote. <laughs> and I, I've been doing this since the mid-1990s. And in the 90s, we were a pretty small group of people, but word has gotten out that this is the cool 
vote to be at. And there are now often about 300 people in the room. And we have a printed ballot. And then in different categories, we discuss and people stand up in this room of 300 people and give little speeches for or against particular words in particular categories, uh, sometimes to applause and boos and things like that. And then <laughs> we vote and we vote by hand. So I would say that the count is approximate. Okay. <laughs> um, but but that's how – so we vote on all the different categories and then the final vote at the end of the hour is the word of the year and that is pulled from different categories and then – that then often there is an announcement in the press of what we decided was the word of the year. And what was the most recent word of the year? So the word of the year for 2016 was dumpster fire. <laughs> Very apt. So the word of the year for 2015 was singular they. Huh. Particularly as it is used for individuals who identify outside the male-female binary. Right. And I mean, it's really interesting to go back and look at what the words of the year have been. In 1999, the word of the year was Y2K. Huh. And in the year 2000, the word of the year was Chad. Uh, which, of course it was. Yes. Right. The, the hanging chads. Right. Um, but what is amazing is I will say that to 18-year-olds and they look at me like, what's a Chad? <laughs> and I think... Oh, right. You were one year old they imagine when that a, happened. They imagine a bro or something. <laughs> but you you can see things that happen. I mean, there were subprime was the word of the year. Bailout was the word of the year. And then we had words of the year like hashtag and app. I think one of my favorites is because plus noun. This uh, is and, – and when we announced it, people were like, what, what kind of word of the year is because? That's an old word, which is totally true. It is an old word. But the way that young people are now using it as in because science. Right. That is fascinating to linguists because it is using because in a prepositional way with just a noun or sometimes an adjective, you know, because crazy – that's so, um, so that's so that's a really interesting use of because that's so interesting because I, I think of that as being like, oh, that's, you know, that that's sort of like a bloggy usage from from a year or two ago. But that's something that, like, is really sticking around. It does seem to be. Huh. And you and I have here that you had a word chosen as word of the millennium in uh, 2000. Is that correct? Yeah. The year in 2000. Uh, it was a long meeting because we voted on the word of the year. We voted on the word of the decade. Uh, so this was in 2000, and the word of the decade was web. Very, that makes a lot of sense. We voted on the word of the century, which was jazz. And now, so this is the word, before we get to millennium, this is a word that is what encapsulates the spirit of the century, or was it a word that was coined in that period of time? Or Usually, yeah, I mean, we... <laughs> We're a very open-minded group. So it can be that it is brand new to that decade or that century. It can be with a word like web. It's that it took on a new meaning mm. in that decade because, of course, now web for most of us means something other than spider webs. Um, so jazz was the word of the century. And then we had to have this debate about the word of the millennium. And this was – it was really interesting because what ended up happening was – I nominated she 
for Word of the Millennium. Someone else nominated the as the Word of the Millennium. <laughs> Other people nominated science and government. So you had this debate going on between the little function words right. and the big fancy words. So what's the case? What is the case for she? Because that you're right, that that word seems so little. How is it the word of the millennium as opposed to? Uh, yeah, it seems like that, that that word would have been around for much longer than the millennium. Right, and that's what's so interesting about it. The word she. That form shows up. The first instance we have of it is in 1154. So it is new to the millennium. It's not that Old English, the language of Beowulf, didn't have a pronoun for she. It did. So in Old English, he was pronounced hey, and the pronoun she was heyo. So you had hey and heyo. Oh, okay. And then she comes in in 1154 and replaces heyo. There's been a lot of ink spilled on where she comes from. It's a little bit of a linguistic mystery, Mm. which... Is also fascinating to think about where this comes from. And then we, many of us were making the argument we should celebrate the function words, celebrate the pronoun. These are really important parts of the language. And then the other argument was that when you look at changes over the millennium, the progress of women, women's rights, has been a really important part of the millennium. And she was a way to capture that. Right. That's that's fascinating. I never would have thought of she as being an at all recent development. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, the idea of she is not new, but that actual form with a with a sh is new. New if if 1154 is new. (laughs) Right. It's not that new. See, I love talking to you uh, about the uh, about the language because you know every, every little detail becomes you know uh, so interesting and so full of life once you start looking at it in this way. Um, is there uh, you know is there a way that you know you hope that we can bring this sort of perspective on the language to the way it's taught in school? Because as you said, you know the way it's taught in school is so. Um, lifeless and uh, and rigid in, in this way that it, it seems designed to almost make people fall out of the out of love with the language. Well, this is my hope. And there are a lot of us and there are certainly teachers who are in there working to help students love language and explore language. And, and that is something that I'm working on and graduate students I know are working on and other faculty and lots of educators who are trying to think about what would it mean to rethink our curriculum so that we could explore language and it could be fun and and to help people see the argument that you can teach the formal standard and have it be fun all at the same time. Mm. And I think that's the piece that we really need to persuade people of. And I'm absolutely convinced of it because I've seen it happen, which is that People will say, oh, if you just make it exploratory and fun, then you're not teaching kids the formal standard. And I say, no, no, no. These are not mutually exclusive. That the formal standard, when it becomes a piece of the puzzle and not the whole puzzle, makes it much more fun. And it makes more sense to students because when you say to a student something like, those two negatives cancel each other out, 
that student, if they are a student who uses double negation, they just look at you like you're crazy <laughs> because they know that that just can't be true. Yeah, because that's not that's not what it means when they say it. That's not how they're understood. <laughs> that's right. And so to say, okay, let's let's unpack that. Let's think about how this works and how it works in the standard. Well, now we're having a conversation. Now we're getting to ask questions and think about where things come from. And and as you say. Every little nook and cranny of the language has something interesting going on in it. That's wonderful. I, I hope that we can uh, uh, spread that consciousness as far as we can because it, it – yeah, I mean the idea of questioning uh, things and, and uh, you know, asking why is is entirely what I'm all about. And, and so that's what I love about this. Thank you so much for being on the show, Anne. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you again to Anne for coming on the show. Thank you folks for listening. And that is it for this week's Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in just two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about the podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Pretty please. Again, Adam Ruins Everything is back every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com Slash Adam ruins everything and the Watch True TV app. But until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.